students, I'm going to talk to you this morning, but if you haven't noticed, we have some other people here who've joined us. Uh, so I'm going to be talking to kind of both crowds a little bit. I'm going to say some stuff maybe you've already heard a couple times and catch everyone up to speed, and then we're going to have a, a, a conversation. So let me recap a little bit where we've been. Our theme this weekend is vision. It's this word right here. Everyone say Vision. And just like Devin said, God wants to, God has a vision for us and our lives, and then God wants to change our visions, uh, how we see ourselves, how we see the world around us, how we see our relationships, our opportunities, our insecurities. God wants to change our vision. Everything we talked about uh, the first, or everything we talked about all weekend can be summed up in this sentence right here. If you are a follower of Jesus, the way you see everything will change. He will get in you and change your reality and how you see your reality. So night one, we kind of uh, dove into it with this sentence here. Everything we talked about night one was summed up with this. You will recognize Christ's call to follow by how your sight begins to change. We followed two characters, right? Peter and Paul. Peter, his, his vision changed when he met Jesus on a boat. You see, Jesus was, or I'm sorry, Peter was a fisherman. Now, there's some things we can conclude by finding out that Peter was a fisherman. You see, every good Jewish boy studied the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And if you were really, really good at it, if you really memorized it, and you were able to articulate truths from it and debate it and quote it and all these different things, a rabbi would come up to you and say, why don't you follow me? And you would say, oh, wow, yes, I will follow you. And you would start following this rabbi. If you did not do a good job studying the Torah, and if you did not have what it took, you would then do something like catching fish or becoming a carpenter. You would do some blue-collar work, and that's where we find Peter, out on a boat catching fish. But then one day a rabbi comes and says, can I borrow your boat? And they borrow, Jesus borrows Peter's boat, then they end up going fishing, and Jesus says, hey, why don't you throw your nets on the other side of the boat, which is horribly offensive to this man who is a fisherman. That makes no sense to just throw nets on the other side. But we also know that Peter's not that great of a fisherman. There are three stories in Scripture of him fishing, and he only catches one fish on his own in one of them. So Peter's not even all that great at that. Throws the net over. Fish come from every nook and cranny in that great lake and Peter falls down on his knees before Jesus and says I am a sinful man depart from me but then Jesus changes his vision and he shows Peter that he is called Jesus says you're a fisherman I will make you a fisher of men and gives Peter a purpose and a meaning and Peter's sight changes but then on night one we also talked about Paul remember how Paul was riding on the road to Damascus to go kill himself some Christians. Because Paul was the religious elite. He was the opposite of Peter. He knew the Torah. A rabbi had probably asked Paul to follow him at one time. Paul was the religious of the religious. And he was threatened by Jesus. He was threatened by this message of grace and how Jesus said that God was for everyone. And so Paul made it, or sorry, Saul made it his mission to go kill some Christians. But on the road to Damascus, Jesus appeared, the resurrected Jesus with fire and craziness, 
shows up and blinds Saul. He falls back and literally his vision is taken away. But when God heals him and Paul regains his vision, he doesn't just regain his physical vision. His spiritual vision is restored. And the way he sees God and the world around him and himself changes. On night one, when we talked about Peter, I held up a glass and I said, Peter was like this. He was empty. But when he met Jesus, Jesus poured into him. Peter thought he had no purpose, thought he had no reason, thought he wasn't good enough, but Jesus filled him up. But Paul was more like a cinder block. I held a cinder block up in front of the students and said, Paul was set in his ways. He thought, I'm good enough with my own talent, my own skills, my own smarts. And Jesus had to break him. And some of us are like Peter, empty. Some of us showed up to one weekend with our own insecurities, maybe our disorders, maybe our eating disorders, or we sat, we've sat across from a doctor who has diagnosed us with anxiety or OCD or depression, or we have uh, been empty because we just uh, keep on getting in trouble even though we don't want to get in trouble. Maybe there's problems in our homes. Maybe there's behavior that we're doing that makes us feel gross, but we don't know how to stop it. Maybe we've shown up to one weekend empty and we need Jesus to fill us. Or maybe we've shown up to one weekend like Paul and we need Jesus to break us. So then I set a cinder block on stage and I broke it with a sledgehammer. Now, If you look at me, you'll see that I don't necessarily have the physical stature of someone who breaks sledgehammers or breaks uh, cinder blocks. It'd be amazing if I just shattered the sledgehammer uh, to a dust. Now, this gentleman right here, would you mind standing up for me, sir? This is the kind of guy who just breaks cinder blocks for fun. He's like, got an hour to kill. I'm just going to go smash some stuff. So I prayed, and the cinder block broke, and the whole thing worked. It was great. But uh, some of you showed up to one weekend needing to be broken, relying on your own strengths, relying on your own talents, saying, I'm good enough. I got this. But we don't got this. When you have to live life having got this, it only produces more anxiety, more depression. Jesus wants to break you. That sledgehammer is an act of love, not cruelty. When Jesus breaks us, we can finally be set free. Let's see if I can recap the rest of the weekend a little faster. The next morning, we uh, talked about this. Reflecting on how to respond to Christ's call exposes areas to say this word for me. And this requires the Holy Spirit's power. So as our sight begins to change, we start to realize, oh, there are some dark corners in my life. There are some selfish parts to me that need to be let go, surrendered, and boy, that is hard. It is hard to let go of some of the things that make us feel secure, some of the things that gives us pleasure. It is hard to surrender, but if our vision is truly changing, we will realize that we need to let go, but here's the catch. We don't have what it takes. You do not have what it takes to surrender to Jesus. We are too insecure. We are too into our own sin. We are too addicted to pleasure. We can't let go of it on our own. 
We need a power outside of ourselves to help us. Talk to your students about how the temptation at a weekend like one weekend is to say, I'm excited about Jesus now, so I'm going to stop cussing and drinking and I'm going to break up with my boyfriend or girlfriend and I'm going to start listening to Christian music and I'm going to start... I'm going to give money to something. Mom, can I have some money to give to something? And so we have a new long list of rules that we're going to follow. Now there are are do's and don'ts to following Jesus, sure. But we talked about the difference of just rules and being enthralled with Jesus. Or we take up a new cause. I'm going to serve the homeless. I'm going to go on a mission trip. Or we just try to look the part. I'm going to wear my Vision 20 shirt all week long and never take it off. And I'm going to, I'm going to start talking the talk and listening to the music or whatever else. When Jesus really wants to change you from the inside out. I held up another jar and said, we were created to hold the Spirit of God inside of us we were created to have the essence of god in us do you remember the word the breath of god ruah yeah there it is let's let students let's show everyone how you say ruah one two three yeah yeah i kind of started a cult this weekend (laughs) it was on accident didn't mean to Ruah is the Hebrew word for the breath of God. It's an automatopoeia, like meow or splat or boom. It's a good Jewish person knows how to say it from like right here. Ruah. So the, one more time, students. One, two, three. This is the sound of God's breath blowing into us. Now, God's breath wasn't just like oxygen. It was actually God, God spoke and created light and and made the entire universe and then in the middle of it he put some dust together and he breathed into it and man and woman came to life with the breath of god not just oxygen but the actual essence of god the presence of god the spirit of god the power of the one who just spoke light into being now abides into man now abides in man and woman we are created to be containers but you know the story we got broken because of sin and we leaked a different way to word it is this god said i will not share space with sin i will not share space with sin and so the ruah departed but we knew oh but i'm created to contain something though i'm supposed to be filled so if i'm empty now with no ruah what can i be filled with and now every sin and every broken thing that's ever happened in human history is a result of men and women trying to be filled every war that has ever been raged is someone trying to be filled with power or control every broken relationship every physical or mental or psychological or sexual abuse every lie every embezzlement every scandal goes back to people trying to be filled with something so i took some vegetable oil which in I don't know why I've chosen vegetable oil to represent evil, but took some vegetable oil and filled up this jar with vegetable oil because we are all desiring to be full. But what we've done is we've said, but Jesus died for all this sin and Jesus rose from the dead. So now because Jesus died for me, I need to start trying to get the sin out. So we try to get the sin out of us. I'm going to obey the rules. I'm going to listen to good music. I'm going to stop cussing. I'm going to go to church. And we try to get the sin out of us, but we're made to be filled. We can't just empty ourselves. 
So every time we try to empty ourselves, we fill ourselves back up with something. And usually it's going back to that same addiction or that same friendship or that same distraction. So what do we do? Well, we surrender to the Holy Spirit. The good news is this. Jesus wants to breathe the Ruah back into us. You remember the story, students? Jesus showed up to the disciples after he rose from the dead and he went one-to-one and he breathed on them, Scripture says. Now, this is strange. If I were to stand, (laughs) if I were to stand at the doors out there and just say, come here, come here. (laughs) Cinder blocks over here would probably punch me straight in the throat. But the resurrected Lord breathed on his disciples and they said, Ruah, he has died for that filth. He has paid the price. Now God is willing to abide in us again. And Jesus put the Ruah back into us. We have the spirit of God. And so I took some water and I poured it in the jar and the water displaced the oil. So instead of trying to get all the bad out, we need to get the spirit in and pray for Jesus to breathe into us. And push out all that is evil and start replacing it with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. You know, the fruits of the Spirit. And then once we've opened ourselves to the Spirit, then we have the power to surrender. Then last night we talked about this. Love for Jesus leads us to embrace his vision for our lives, even when it's what? And what? Now, parents... I didn't want you to hear about this. I was hoping this would stay between me and the students. But I have a little three-year-old daughter who's someday going to be going to youth group. And I have a six-month-old daughter who's someday going to be going to youth group. And I'm not going to be happy if some 35-year-old wearing skinny jeans because he's trying to still have it (laughs) tells my daughter she's supposed to be dangerous. I'm going to say, hey, bud, shut up. But as I read my scripture, I hear Jesus calling us to become very uncomfortable and to live dangerously for him. But we've made Jesus all about uh, keeping us happy. I don't think Jesus would want me to be unhappy. I think Jesus wants me to be true to myself, quote unquote, whatever that even means. No. No. Jesus calls you to lay down your life. Jesus says, hey, if anybody's going to follow me, let him take up his cross and die daily. Let him lay down on the lethal injection table and be pumped full of toxins until he breathes his last. Until he ceases to exist. Because I want to get all the vegetable oil. I want to get all the sin out and the new life in. He calls us to die. And then to do what it takes to live out our faith for him. Well, sometimes I hear stuff like this and I'm like, I don't know if I like Jesus very much. This sounds kind of harsh until I realize how dangerously Jesus loved. That Jesus was nailed to a cross and tortured brutally. He became very uncomfortable and lived very dangerously so that we could be set free. And we learned about Peter going and becoming very uncomfortable by stepping into the home of a Gentile. That was sinful in Peter's tradition, but he did it. And now we get to fill this church today because Peter spread the gospel to Gentiles. Sure, glad he got uncomfortable. 
Paul got pretty dangerous. Has anybody in here ever seen Groundhog Day? Anybody? Okay. My favorite scene in Groundhog Day is when Bill Murray says, I've been stabbed, I've been burned, I've been electrocuted, all the ways he's tried to kill himself to just end this endless cycle. He says, but every day I wake up right here in Punxsutawney, and it's Groundhog Day. Paul has a verse like that. I've been shipwrecked, I've been beaten with rods, I have been stoned, I have been robbed. But every day I wake up and I'm the missionary to the Gentiles. I was given a thorn in my flesh, but I will boast in my weaknesses and rely on the grace of Jesus. We are called to live dangerously because we have a Savior who lived dangerously for us. So with all that in mind... Now that we're all caught up, let me share something with you today. Here's everything I want to say to you today. It can be summed up in this sentence. Set your vision out of your current lives and set your vision on Christ-centered lives. Lift your eyes out of your current values and priorities and schedules and to-do lists and relationships, and lift your eyes up into a Christ-centered life. In the book of Acts, we see that Jesus is risen from the dead, and then he gathers his disciples around, and he shares one last message with them. He says this in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then Jesus levitates on a cloud into the sky and disappears. And the disciples are going, what just happened? And that's it. And the tears pour out of their eyes as they go, wait, Jesus, no. That was it. And Jesus has now entrusted the disciples to carry out his mission on earth. This is his closing remark. You will receive power when the Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. Now, if, if Jesus had come to Bentonville, Arkansas, and went up into the sky, this is what he would have said. You will be my witnesses in Bentonville, and in Arkansas, and in America, and to the ends of the earth. If you look at the geography of what Jesus is saying here, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, he's actually broadening the territory as he lists each region. You will be my witnesses here and there and everywhere. You will be my witnesses right where you're at, right here. But you'll all also be my witnesses over there, but then also way out there everywhere so let's talk about this for a second what does it mean to be his witnesses way out there just over there and here let's start with way out there i'm going to talk to you over here in the i think i'm a little bit out of the light i'm going to talk to you over here in the shadows a little bit some of you well as i think about way out there over there and right here i think of all the different seats we can find ourselves sitting in All the chairs that we may plop down in that Jesus places us in. The chair that's way out there might be called 15A or 6B. And it might be on a United flight or a Delta flight or an American Airlines flight. 
But Jesus might be calling you, parents, to finally take your son or daughter on the mission trip. To finally go over the ocean to India or maybe just down to Mexico. But maybe God is calling you as a family to finally board the plane and go do his work. My father-in-law took his daughter on a plane over to Africa when she was 17 years old. Side note, she got a parasite and dealt with all kinds of eating problems and all kinds of stuff for the next eight years. But while she was on that mission trip working at this orphanage in Africa, God stirred in her heart and this 17-year-old girl said, I'm going to adopt someday. That 17-year-old got a little bit older and met a dude who was wearing skinny jeans because he was trying to still have it going on and while they were dating, she said, well, you know, I'm going to adopt someday. And that young man was very physically attracted to her. So he decided maybe he felt called to adopt too. (laughs) (laughs) And this August, Amaya Grace Brown came into our house and we sat in a chair in St. Louis in an agency signing paperwork and then she was brought into us and we held Amaya and we also had to sit on a chair in a courthouse and next month we'll be going back to that same courthouse in St. Louis to finalize the adoption and her name will finally be changed from baby girl to Amaya Grace Brown because my father-in-law put his daughter on a seat called 15B and flew across the ocean. So maybe God's calling you to sit in a chair and go out there. But there's chairs that we all sit in. They're just over there. Students, your chair is maybe in homeroom or in an algebra or geometry class or some chair in band or a bench in basketball or whatever. Or maybe maybe you never sit on the bench. You've never known how to sit on the bench. You're always playing. <laughs> we get it. You're so good at basketball. <laughs> Parents, your, your chair may be a cubicle or a corner office. Or you may wait tables where people sit in chairs and you don't sit in a chair. You just float from chair to chair making sure people don't need refills. But regardless, God puts us in chairs every day. Can I tell you one of the chairs I sit in? Uh, so when I'm off the road, when I'm not speaking, I'm a stay-at-home dad. I hang out, I hang out with the girls. So I'll talk about that a little bit more here in a second. So the responsibility falls on me every Tuesday morning to take my three-year-old daughter to gymnastics class, which I'm honored to do, and I love my daughter. But I am there once a week with, so far it's only been other little girls and a bunch of moms, and then me. And one of these things is not like the other. And I sit there, but there's this other mom named Melissa. 
who my daughter has really grown to like her daughter. And my wife and I have talked about it, trying to invite Melissa and her husband over. But it's weird when I'm the one that goes there. Because how as an adult, first of all, do you just make new friends? When you're seven, it's like, you want to be my friend? And the other kid's like, no. And you're like, okay. (laughs) On to the next one. But as an adult, you're like, would you like to have dinner? And then that gets weird when it's a dude asking some lady at gymnastics. That's a good way to get kicked out of gymnastics. But we've kind of navigated this and now Melissa and her husband are going to come over to our house and we're going to have dinner with them and I haven't been arrested and it's going okay. So that's the chair I sit in. What's your chair just over there that God has placed you in to just live intentionally? But we all have this chair, the right here chair. I told you I stay home. When I'm off the road. Well, <clears throat> a year ago, uh, so I worked for an organization called Christ in Youth. You bring your students to our events. I was the director for a program called Mix um, and did that for eight years. I was starting to feel God pull me out of CIY, not because of anything negative, just feeling God's calling. And so we took a year to pray what, about what God wanted me to do next. And I kept on thinking it was way over in one of these chairs. For a time, I even thought, are we supposed to do missions? I thought maybe we're supposed to plant a church. I thought about nonprofits I wanted to start. I had all these really big, huge dreams that I felt God was calling me to do. And then one night, I felt God going, hold on, bud. Why do you keep ignoring the chair you're sitting in right now? And he said, get smaller. Get smaller. Nope, get smaller. You have a family right in front of you that's waiting for you to minister creatively to them. Now, my wife works. She's a real estate agent. She's very good at it. My wife was a stay-at-home mom for a while and was very good at that. But she comes to life when she works. She enjoys working. And also, I have a ministry degree and she has a business degree, so she's always going to make more money than me. So let's get real. I already need to just accept that. So I thought, okay, you enjoy doing that. How can I set you up to do what you love doing? And so she was doing that, and I was working for a little bit, but our daughters are getting passed between babysitters, which is not wrong. There's a totally good, healthy way to do that. But the way it was happening with us is our daughter was really getting thrown around. And so I just said, what if I went and spoke some, but we set a cap? It's not sky's the limit. It's not as many speaking engagements as I can get. We just set a cap. And then I stay home with the girls and do the stay-at-home dad thing. So you know the chair I sit in usually is a chair with a high chair in front of it. I'm trying to get baby oatmeal into a head that can't even hold itself up. <laughs> the other chair I sit in is a little step stool that I sit in and I my two-year-old daughter or my three-year-old daughter sitting on a toilet and I'm going just just pot can you just think about peeing just think about peeing stop no we can talk about that later just think about peeing babe you know my favorite chair to sit in is the driver's seat when we're running errands when my when my daughter says daddy tell me a story and every once in a while she wants to hear a bible story so I tell her the story of Jesus healing the blind man and no offense I believe this in the core of my heart. I love being here with you, but I am, I am making a greater kingdom impact when I tell my daughter 
the story of Jesus healing the blind man than any fruit I'm bearing this weekend with you. I am shaping the kingdom. I am advancing the kingdom. I am bearing witness. I am Jesus' witness when I hang out with my daughter. So if some of you are thinking, I am on hold to someday get out there or over there, and Jesus will someday allow me to minister for him after I'm done raising these kids, eh, pause. Cancel that lie. Chase that lie out. You are called to such a time as this, to sit in front of your child and bear witness to the power of Jesus Christ. This is your mission field. Now. So what is your here? What is your there? What is your everywhere? Where are you called? Now, if I were you, I'd be getting a little bit stressed. Oh my gosh, I'm supposed to take my kids on a mission trip. I'm supposed to share Jesus at basketball games and baseball games and gas station attendance. And I'm supposed to be doing that. And then I'm supposed to tell my kids stories. I don't even like my kids. <laughs> How am I supposed to do all this? Well, I want to give you two things here towards the end of my talk. The first is this. Look at the first half of the verse. Let's not get so caught up on here, there, and everywhere that we zoom right past the beginning. The beginning says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You know what it doesn't say? It doesn't say you will receive power when you come up with a really good evangelism strategy. You will receive power when you really hone your public speaking skills. You will receive power when you get that Bible college degree. You will receive power when you print off tracts and start handing them out to waitresses and waiters or whatever else. The Bible says you will receive power when the Spirit comes over you. And then it will flow out of you and you will then be a witness to Jesus Christ. So instead of developing a strategy or three easy steps to going and sharing the faith, maybe we are to get on our knees and pray for the Holy Spirit. But I want to jump somewhere kind of random for a second. This is going to feel random, but I want to say my second thing to those of you who may feel a little bit stressed about sitting in all these seats. Let's go to my verse in Revelations, guys. Revelations, sorry. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb. Let's pause for a second. Revelation is talking about evil being thrown to the ground. The devil, the evil one, is finally defeated. Jesus has won All evil has been slain. God wins the day. How? By the blood of the lamb and what? And by the word of their testimony. And other translations will say by the testimony of the saints. They did not love their life so much as to shrink from death. All evil is defeated. How? By sons and daughters of God saying, can I tell you my story? Can I just tell you why I'm a Christian? Here's what Jesus has done in my life. And all evil is defeated. Strongholds are broken. The devil is cast down when you just open your mouth and tell your story. And so it's not 
degrees in Bible college. It's not strategies. It's not being an expert in apologetics that helps us travel the oceans and change the world. It is simply saying, let me tell you why I believe in Jesus and what he has done in my life. And when we tell our stories, evil is defeated. You guys can bring up my very last slide. So what do we do with the sermon today? One, we as families get on our knees, and we talked about this the other night, students, and we just ask for the Holy Spirit. We ask for the power of the Holy Spirit to fill us and guide us. We set alarms on our phone asking, to reminding us to pray for the Spirit every single day. And then we receive power, and then we are witnesses. Not in our strength, but in the strength God gives us. And then two, we just start telling our story. You can't argue with a story. And we start bearing witness to little toddlers who just want to hear a story. Or people we work with. Or people we finally just invite over to our house. And then someday we go out there. I'll tell you this story, then I'm done. A friend of mine grew up in a home where people would party all night and he would wake up and there would be just people drunk all over the living room. He was a little boy. And he'd walk past everyone and make his own breakfast. That's the environment he grew up in. Broken. But then one day, someone, a friend of his, just another junior high student, sixth grade or seventh grader, invited him over to spend the night. He said, okay. And he went over there. And he saw a dad who played with his sons. The dad picked up the boys and threw them over his shoulder and threw them on the couch. You get it, cinder blocks. <clears throat> and wrestled with his boys. And my friend backed up against the wall. He, he was scared at first. And then you realize, oh, my friends are all laughing and giggling. And the dad wrestled with his boys. And the family ate dinner together. It was just a good home. And then they went to church on Sunday morning together. It was a Christian family. For the first time ever, he saw a family love each other and be healthy. And then he was introduced to church. Because someone just invited him over. That's it. That is it. Someone was faithful to the seat they sat in and a little sixth grader said, you want to come spend the night? And that friend of mine grew up. His name is Jason French and he is the president of Christ and Youth, which is an international organization. And people are hearing the gospel in Ireland and Canada and India. And uh, we are, I say we, I don't work there anymore currently, but doing research in Latino speaking countries and all around the United States, 85,000 students come to CIY events in the States and Jason French is the president of that organization and a friend, a sixth grader invited him over. That's it. And the testimony of Jesus was born in his life. So will you pray for the spirit? Will you share your story? And Grace Point, I know it is your mission to live sent. If we are people of the Spirit telling our story, I believe Bentonville, Arkansas, America, the ends of the earth will be changed. God, thank you for this weekend. Thank you that we got to worship you. 
Make your name known. Someday we won't be here anymore. No matter how young we are or old we are, someday we're going to move on. But your name is forever. I pray that you can use us for this brief time that we get to walk on this earth. You use us to make your name known and to accomplish your mission. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray.